following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right, welcome to Fellowship Bible Church this morning. If you're visiting with us uh, either here or online, we welcome you. Glad that you're participating with us uh, today and that we can worship together. If you would take your Bibles and turn to the prophet Ezekiel, please, we will look in chapter 14 for our scripture reading, chapter 14 of Ezekiel. Now some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Every one of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity, and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols, that I may seize the house of Israel by their heart, because they are all estranged from me by their idols." Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, Repent, turn away from your idols, and turn your faces away from all your abominations. For any one of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who dwell in Israel, who separates himself from me, and sets up his idols in his heart, and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity, then comes to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me, I, the Lord, will answer him by myself." I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb, and I will cut him off from the midst of my people. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet is induced to speak anything, I, the Lord, have induced that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him to destroy him from among my people Israel. And they shall bear their iniquity. The punishment of the prophet shall be the same as the punishment of the one who inquired that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me, nor be profaned any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people, and I may be their God, says the Lord God. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. Even if these three men... Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they empty it and make it so desolate that no man may pass through because of the beasts, even though these three men were in it as I live, says the Lord, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters. Only they would be delivered and the land would be desolate. Or... If I bring a sword on that land and say, Sword, go through the land, and I cut off man and beast from it, even though these three men were in it as I live, says the Lord, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but only they themselves would be delivered. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my fury on it in blood and cut off from it man and beast, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. For thus says the Lord God, How much more it shall be when I send my four severe judgments on Jerusalem, the sword, 
and famine and wild beasts and pestilence to cut off man and beast from it. Yet behold, there shall be left in it a remnant who will be brought out, both sons and daughters. Surely they will come out to you, and you will see their ways and their doings. Then you will be comforted concerning the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem, all that I have brought upon it. And they will comfort you when you see their ways and their doings. And you shall know that I have done nothing without cause that I have done in it, says the Lord God. Ezekiel 14. Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, please, if you would. I encourage that to uh, get out your copy of God's Word, whether it's print or electronic, that we could look at Matthew and the 10th chapter. You ask, why 10? Well, we've been going at Matthew since just before Christmas last year. I started a series uh, speaking in Matthew 1 and 2 about the birth narrative as we ran up to Christmas, and because I had not preached through the Gospel of Matthew verse by verse at, yet, I thought it was high time that we uh, begin doing that. So I've been taking a section at a time on Wednesday nights and Sunday evenings for quite some time, off and on, and uh, we've arrived at chapter 10. All of the previous messages are available online. The notes uh, mostly are available. Uh, the audio is available on the church website and also on the YouTube uh, channel if you'd like to go back and listen to any particular section of this. And I started this chapter on Wednesday. I'll review some of that, and then we'll uh, move ahead into the newer part of the chapter, for us anyway. Matthew chapter 10. It's a rather lengthy chapter, <clears throat> and uh, it's all about the commissioning of the twelve, the commissioning of the twelve, and they are going to be commissioned to what I call the kingdom commission, not the great commission. This is a different matter altogether. Uh, this will become clear as we read the text very soon. Even so, though, the two, two are different, the kingdom commission, the great commission, uh, they are connected by a number of threads. Uh, one is that, as you know, if you recall back some months ago, I preached a message on the gospel of the kingdom, trying to show that the gospel of the kingdom is not really any substantively different than the, the gospel that we preach, the gospel of grace, as some call it. Some have tried to make a distinction between them, but I think really the, the best way to think of the gospel of the kingdom is the overarching good message of God, under which there's also the message of personal salvation, and the personal salvation is just a part of the gospel of the kingdom because the kingdom will include restoration not just of individuals to a good relationship with the king, but also restoration of the society, restoration of the world. And ultimately, God through Christ has made a provision to reconcile all things to himself in Christ, in the cosmos, everything. That will come about in the eternal state, but there will be a period of time in history, we can say, before the eternal state begins, in which the Lord will reign and be vindicated <clears throat> even on this earth where he was so abused and despised, and his people for thousands of years as well. And so the two are connected. Uh, there are similarities in the missions themselves, and there are similarities in the conditions around or in surrounding those mission works, both the kingdom commission here, more limited, and then the broader scope, <clears throat> uh, Great Commission in Matthew 28. 
We begin in chapter 10 and verse number 1, and let's read on a little bit here and get some context. Uh, And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. We'll find out later, too, that he uh, allowed them to heal sickness and disease to the extent that they were allowed to raise the dead uh, as well. See that in just a few verses here. And so he then says, or Matthew then writes, Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Labias, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So they were given this spiritual power akin to what the Lord himself had. And I uh, tried to spend a moment to imagine just what that must have been like. How does God convey that spiritual power to somebody? Uh, Just now thinking of it, it reminds me of the circumstance in Moses' life when he was suggested to uh, share some of the burden of his service to the nation. And and God uh, called 70 men to assist him, and he put his spirit upon them. And uh, how odd that must have been for those men and for those around to see what happened to those men. There was no physical change in their constitution, but it must have felt strange to them. How could they suddenly have authority to fix people's illnesses and to tell demons to go bye-bye and to even call back a spirit from the afterlife into the body of a person to raise that soul back to life? It's an odd an odd thing if you think about it. And it's very rare in, in world history, very rare periods of time in which God enabled people to do these kinds of things. We do not exist in one of those periods of time today. There was the initial creation, there was Moses, there was um, Elijah and Elisha, the time of the Lord Jesus, the time of the apostles. But that's basically it. There are these outbreaks of miraculous activity But we're not in one of those, and so this power is not given to us, and we see that in in, um, Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians. He's very clear that that the miraculous items that God gives through the Spirit are not current for today. They will cease. They have already ceased. But that's what he gave to these disciples. And then we have the list of the disciples, and in your notes you can see those. I've replicated there a list from each of the four Gospels and the book of Acts if they have a list or uh, a portion of the list of the disciples. And I've given you on page two a bunch of notes about them. We went over these on Wednesday evening. I'll just mention a couple of them again. Um, We see uh, in um, one of these, Simon. Simon is called the Canaanite. And that's a little confusing. We mentioned on, hey, welcome, brother. We, we mentioned on Wednesday that Canaanite could be looked at by us in the English language, and we might say, well, is he from Cana? Or is he, as some spell it in English translations, a Canaanite, C A N A A N, like an Amorite or a Jebusite or a, whatever those ites are in the Old Testament? Is he one of those from the land of Canaan? And the answer really is neither of those. The idea is from the Aramaic word current at the time that Simon was an enthusiast 
or what we better know as a zealot. And other portions of Scripture actually call him and translate that out. He's the zealot, which meant that he was of a national populist political party that wanted to throw off the yoke of Rome. He was zealous for that, and so he was known uh, by that. But of course, that political reality faded far into the background as he was called by the Lord to minister for him. Okay, So he didn't continue to be an activist, if you will, for his political cause. He was now an activist for his spiritual cause. He was an activist for the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was called as one of these disciples. And God, of course, takes people and uses them in sometimes in their kind of natural giftedness or ability. Think of Simon uh, the Zealot, who probably did, you know, I don't know what kind of crazy things he did, but he was out there, and he was probably out there for the Lord. Think of another example, the Apostle Paul, very well-educated, uh, super smart in the Old Testament, um, zealous for the things of God, and God used that. He sanctified that and used it in his life. Uh, we have Matthew, the tax collector, also known as Levi. Uh, we have several, um, a couple pairs of brothers. We have Thomas, who is called the twin, the, or Didymus in some of your translations. He is a twin, which must have been an you know, interesting thing and perhaps sometimes funny when he was mixed up with his brother. But uh, he was the uh, Thomas, the twin, and uh, the one who had some doubt, not only was a Didymus, but also a doubter uh, at times, but he was, uh, he was okay in the end. So we have those. I'll let you look at all of those. I put some footnotes by the names there. You can study that if you're, if you're interested. There are a couple of issues with names. Is Bartholomew the same as Nathaniel and so on? But we won't get caught up in those uh, issues this morning. Now for the mission that's assigned to these men. Then Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is, uh, has been in history often overlooked in interpretation, where people have lifted things out of this text and applied them directly to the church, when in fact this is different than the Great Commission. How do we know that? Well, it's very specific. The Great Commission says, go to all the nations. And this kingdom commission says, don't go to all the nations. And you might think, oh, how is that? Why is that? Isn't that exclusive? Isn't that uh, discriminatory? Well, if the Lord does it, you can know this. There's no discrimination. There's no sinful discrimination in it, obviously. To those of us that know the Lord, that's the case. The Lord is specifically directing the disciples here to preach a specific message to a specific people in a specific time because he has a purpose for them. He has a purpose. And this purpose is why I call it the Kingdom Commission. Okay? So remember, again, just cement that in your mind. In the Great Commission, we're told to go to all the nations. In this commission, they're, not, they're told not to go to all the nations, only one nation. Not even Samaritans, who are kind of, you could say, half and half. But... These were to go to the nation of Israel. And so this fact is important because if you go into this passage ignoring that and say, well, look, 
Jesus told them to go, and they were to heal, and they were to cast out demons, and therefore, we're supposed to do that. You see the, the quick jump right over verses 5 and 6, ignoring what the Lord is talking about in the context of it, and just saying, look, that's for us. So we have power evangelism, we have charismatic doctrine, we have you know, speaking in tongues and all kinds of things. That's not taught here at all. Please do not be mistaken about that issue. So... Uh, that time, those disciples, that place, not the Great Commission, and certainly not empowering us today to do these kinds of uh, miraculous works. Now, what's the message? They're to preach. As you go, preach saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom has come near to them in the person of the Messiah King, and they are being told that the kingdom is near, and there's an implied response that is called for here. What is that response? Well, it doesn't say in the text, the summary, this is really a summary statement, but we know exactly what it is from earlier in Matthew's gospel. And what is that? Well, in Matthew 3 and Matthew 4, John the Baptist and Jesus said, not just the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so that's what they were saying to the people. Look, the king is present. He's offering his kingdom. And you need to respond to that. You need to come into line with the king. And so we have a twofold message here. We have a joyful message. Look, the kingdom is, is here. We are now because, see, that what happened was the nation of Israel, to whom this was preached, said, no thanks. We don't want anything to do with this man. Instead, they put him on a cross and killed him. And so the Lord, knowing all that, having predestined that, having ordained all of that, turned his attention to the Gentiles to call out for himself a people for his own namesake. This is what the book of Acts is about. And he calls us to himself. That's why we're here today. We're many of us Gentiles. The whole mission around the world is calling Gentiles to gather in churches and to be saved, to be members of those churches, and to serve God, to carry out the Great Commission to the next generation, to raise their kids to know the message of the gospel. And we don't preach, though, do we? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. When's the last time, like, you know, we go out cold calling or go onto the campus and, you know, we stand on a soapbox and say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand? No, we say something more like, Jesus died for your sins and rose again, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn from your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But we don't talk about the kingdom and the kingdom at hand and that sort of thing. That's because the kingdom of heaven is not technically at hand because Jesus is not here. He's not here right now. He's in heaven. But he's coming back and the kingdom is coming. We could very well preach the kingdom is coming. And you need to be rightly related to the king. How? By believing in the king and trusting in him and for your salvation and being washed from your sins and so on. But they were calling them to repent. By the way, you, um, you know, when, when it comes about that there are messengers who are, who are galloping across the hills of Judea saying that, Behold, your God reigns. And you say, How beautiful are those feet? that preach the gospel of peace. When that announcement comes, when the Lord Jesus returns, won't you be glad to? Because this world in which we sit 
is in an utter mess, and it needs the Lord to straighten it out. There's not, you can't vote it to be straightened out, my friends. Yeah. You know, there are too many pitfalls to voting itself to be able to uh, effect change. And there are too few people who are righteous people who want to effect change. The Lord Jesus will come and straighten out the things of the world when he returns. And so we, we have, these guys had, and we too have, although at a little more distance than they had, because the Lord is present with them and he's not here now, but they had a joyful message, but they also had a convicting message. That message of the gospel that we preach, the message of the kingdom being at hand that they preached, is a convicting message. The king is here and he demands you, remember um, the Sermon on the Mount? Demands that you have more righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees. And you're like, I mean, that's a high calling. How do I do that? And so it demands that you turn to him and say, look, Lord, I am a sinner and I cannot do that myself. I must trust in you for that kind of righteousness that you're calling for. And so it is a convicting message as well as a joyful message. Now, he says to them, here's the message, here's what you're supposed to preach. Then he says in verse 8, here's how you're going to authenticate yourself to them. They're going to say, who are you? Why should we believe you? Well, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. That ought to get you at least a little notice. (laughs) People ought to pay attention to what you're saying at least uh, a little bit. And then he says to them, freely you have received, freely give. Freely you have received, freely give. That's a great example in the book of Acts. You know, Peter said, I, silver and gold have I none. What I have I give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, he says to this crippled man, rise and walk. And the man, he, he skipped past walking. He was jumping and, and all kinds of things. Just happy, happy because of what the Lord had done for him. But he had faith to be healed and Peter and John healed him of that, and that gained Peter an audience, didn't it? And and so this would help gain an audience as well as authenticate their message and say these guys really are from God. Now, we we pretty much got up to this point on Wednesday just, you know, sketching this out, and we we ended with this idea that they were to, to give freely, to give freely. They were not to go around and say, look, if you want your son's demon to be cast out, it'll be $1,500, please. And, uh, you know, if it's a especially hard case, we have to put a, you know, a premium on that. And if it's just, you know, raising up somebody from a fever, you know, 50 bucks. <laughs> no, there's no specials. No, no, no uh, coupon codes you put in this, the shopping cart, Okay. They were to freely, freely give that. And, and you know what? They, they would freely give, and they would give, and they would give, and they would never run out. Just as in the application we made to ourselves is we've been freely given the gospel. You, you received it once and you were saved. You could give it a thousand times and still have a thousand times left over to give. You receive freely, freely give. Freely tell people of the message of the gospel of Christ that they might be saved. You don't sell it. You don't corrupt it. You don't hawk it. You don't go around saying, well, like Paul. I mean, he said, 
I'm not going to charge for the gospel. Other churches are supporting me so I can go into a new community. That's why we support missionaries in one, for one reason, because we're sending them so they can be fully undistracted from secular work and they can go and offer the gospel free of charge to the people to whom they go. We've freely received, like I illustrated it also with our work with Bibles International. As many of you know, I've been uh, appointed as an adjunct uh, with the mission and doing uh, Bible text, uh, I guess it's uh, digital text coordination. That's my, my role. We are receiving, we have received God's word. My goal is that our team here, volunteers, will produce applications free of charge for people to use all around the world because we've received freely and we're to freely give. Now, that doesn't mean that it is entirely free because my time is worth something and you folks support us to be able to spend some portion of our time weekly to do that work as well as to prepare preaching and to do counseling and spend time in prayer and those sorts of things. And that's what ministers do and are called to do. And we feel in our particular situation with the skills that God has given to us that we can do that kind of work uh, for the Lord and support the mission that way. But my friend, I don't know how to say this. It's just we have been given so much and we cannot be stingy with what we have received, can we? We must, we must not um, be greedy or or that sort of thing. So we, we came to that point, and we, we, we begin to talk then about financial support in verses 9 and 10. And the Lord says to the disciples, look, provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts. You know, don't take along a store of wealth with you. Don't take a bag for your journey. Don't take two tunics, nor, you know, sandals. I think he means extra sandals, because you're probably wearing one pair. Nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. They did not need to take extra money nor heavy baggage to carry all of their stuff with them. They were to go out, and we might say to go out by faith. This is certainly not what we do in missions work today. We don't do the Great Commission like this. We don't see it exampled in the book of Acts. What's exampled in the book of Acts? The church at Antioch sends out Paul and Barnabas. Church of Philippi, Church of Thessalonica send financial support once and again to Paul to carry out his ministry. And sometimes Paul had to work as a tent maker with Aquila and Priscilla in order to make ends meet. But then when support came from another church, he could say, oh, I'm going to put that aside. I'm going to be able to fully dedicate myself to the preaching of the word of God. So that's what he did. The principle that Jesus states here, the workers worthy of his food, is also found in Luke 10, 7, in a variation where it says the workers worthy of his wages And this is confirmed by the Apostle Paul very interestingly in 1 Timothy in chapter 5 and verse number 18, confirmed by the Apostle Paul to be actually Scripture. This is one of those interesting passages where Scripture alludes to itself. It says in 1 Timothy 5.18, For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. That's Deuteronomy. And the scripture also says the laborer is worthy of his wages. So Paul must have had access, because that, that verse doesn't, a quote doesn't occur like that in the Old Testament. He must have also had access to Luke or Matthew. And he's saying, those are scripture. 
That's holy writ right there, those gospels. So it kind of uh, authenticates part of the New Testament that way. But in any case, the principle is the worker is worthy of his food or his wages. Those who proclaim the gospel, 1 Corinthians says, should be supported by those who have received and been saved by the gospel. The apostles, Paul says, have a right to eat and to drink and even to bring along their family with them as they travel and thus have a right to support. Usually that's a financial support. Sometimes it's an in-kind support, I've heard, and perhaps you have, of pastors in economically challenged areas and their people bring them a chicken. You know, They bring them food so that they can survive. And so that in-kind support is also possible. Galatians chapter 6 says something to this effect. It says in verse 6, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches, and so on. So ministers are to be supported. But also I notice back in Matthew chapter 10 that this begins, for me at least, to lay a sense of urgency upon the disciples for their work. The tenor of the text conveys a sense of hurriedness to it. Um, The king is present. The establishment of the kingdom lies in the balance. In, in, In our commission... Well, let me say why it is that I think there's a sense of urgency. He's, he's talking about lightweight travel arrangements. You know, don't take along, you know, two roller suitcases with you, dragging them along the dusty, you know, rocky roads, trying to, uh, you know, bring all your uh, earthly belongings behind you. No, just, just take the minimal, just move. And also in Luke 10.4, the Bible says, you are to greet no one along the way. Now, I think that probably to us sounds rude. Like, don't say hello to anybody. No, I think it means don't stop and greet them and, and, and spend time with them and, and have fellowship with them and all that. You have a, a job to do, and it's an urgent job. The timing of this job is important, and so you have to, to move along. They're not prohibited from saying a friendly hello. He's telling them, don't stop, don't delay, because you have to go on to the population centers and preach this good news of the kingdom. Now, our mission is a little different because the king is not present and about to establish a kingdom or offering to do so. But in our commission, people are dying. How many, did somebody look up yesterday? How many people die every day? Yeah thousands in our land, maybe in our state, I don't know. You look it up sometime and just ponder. How many people exit this life for eternity every day, every minute, every hour, every second? People are dying and need to know the Lord so as to be secure for eternity, to be rightly related to Him today. So there is a sense of urgency. And this urgency flows into how we carry out the ministry. Like well, later on we'll see when, when they come to a city that won't receive them, what are they to do? Dust off their feet, shake off the dust of their feet, and move on. Frankly, my friends, you don't have time to waste. And somebody, often the question comes up, how long do I pray for so-and-so? Well, keep praying for them. 
But you may not keep pressing the issue actively with them of the gospel. You may not continue to, quote, harass them about the gospel. If they've rejected, if they've taken the atheist road, if they've said, no, science is for me, that faith stuff is for babies, then certainly you may keep praying for them. But if they're rejecting it, then go to another person. Go to another city. If a city, like they did with Paul, kicks you out, leave. Go to the next place and find some fruit that will be there. So there is a sense of urgency, and that does guide how we carry out our ministry. Look at the accommodations that they were to to have. Obviously, we need to have a place to stay if we're moving about, itinerating in a kind of ministry like they had. And so it says in verse 11, Now, whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy and stay there until you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Again, you might wonder, how do they know if, they're, if it's worthy? Uh, how do they know if their peace kind of bounces back off of the front door and doesn't, uh, doesn't stick, so to speak? Well, let's think about that for a moment. The disciples were to seek a worthy person or family in that city or town to go to their, that place and stay there for the duration of their ministry. They were to, uh, you know, not to go seek out the local Hampton Inn, but uh, there, which didn't exist. I mean, there were inns and stuff at the time, but they were told to go to homes and households. And that was another part of their support. When they came to the household, the Lord told them to give their greetings and find out if the people were, I think this is the basic idea, hospitable. Would they receive them? Probably they would announce, look, we're ministers with Jesus and we're sharing the message of the kingdom that's coming. And so they would know they're not just, you know, some guys off the street, so to speak. It seems that they were to observe, the disciples were to observe what kind of response that they would get, perhaps to the message initially of the king. I mean, if if the door says, you know, no soliciting, especially Christians, probably don't go there, you know, because that person inside has already made up their mind what they're going to say and how they're going to respond. But if they respond somewhat favorably, at least initially, they would be declared worthy. If not, they would be unworthy of the peace or, in the Hebrew mind, shalom, which is a very beautiful word, shalom, peace, prosperity, health, well-being, and so forth, blessing. If they rejected the disciples, that peace would not rest on that home. And it seems to me that for disciples who could cast out demons, uh, heal sick people, raise the dead, if they say a blessing or withhold a blessing, that's pretty serious. That's pretty serious. Uh, Doubtless, there was more there than mere words, and I think a real blessing from heaven would come upon that home who was receptive. And we'll actually see at the end of the chapter, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Think of the, uh, the fellow Obed-Edom, who in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel, when they moved the, the uh, ark, uh, and David said, you know, after the Uzzah incident and a guy died, they put the ark on a cart, they weren't supposed to do that, 
And uh, he said, look, I'm leaving it here at, at Obed-Edom's house, the nearest house to where they stopped or something. And God blessed that household because of the presence of his ark that was there. Now, from this passage, I wanted to investigate with you two thoughts, one a little longer than the other, but they're both connected here. And I was alerted to these thoughts as I thought about the doctrine of missiology or mission work in the church. And how do we go about, I mean, sometimes I'm, I'm uh, flustered, uh, perhaps you are as well. How can we find people that will respond to the gospel? How can we, how can we minister so that more people will, will join us in our worship of God and our mission to carry out the gospel? And there's something here that is related to that. And I call it the worthy household principle. The worthy household principle. I mean, the Lord says, if the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. So what is a worthy household and how are they to know and what's it about here? So they're to inquire around the town as to who is worthy. You know, who is a good man? Who is a good, what's a good family in this town that we could go to to find hospitality? The answer would come back to them probably, you know, so-and-so who is the head of such-and-such a clan. You go to his compound and you'll find a welcome there. They are always welcoming guests. They always are doing serving God or whatever. And a first step toward a worthy household. And if it was that way, the disciples' peace was to remain upon it. If the worthy household, uh, or let me say it this way, the worthy household does not mean that that household somehow earned God's salvation. I think that actually it's demonstrating God's work already maybe in um, incipient form, you know, in the beginning stages of his work in that home. Um, we'll look at a couple of examples of that coming up. Uh, perhaps, um, you know, from the disciples' uh, vantage point, that it appears somehow they're already in tune with the things of God. Perhaps they're uh, an honorable religious household, or maybe they're a God-fearing household that does not yet know the Lord Jesus. You know, there were those people during this time, God-fearers. You may have run into some of them. I've run into some who say they fear God, they, they believe in God, and they, but they don't know the gospel. They don't know, like, man, I'm, am I going to make it when I come to final judgment? They have some sense, their conscience, and, and inbuilt into them that knowledge of God that Romans 1 talks about is there. Thank God for that. You don't have to start from, you know, uh, the primordial slime, uh, evolution all the way up to, you know, where we are today. You can start with what they know, and they know, you know, already some things that are true. Maybe they were God-fearing Gentiles who attended synagogue. One guy, Luke chapter 7, Gentile, built a synagogue for the Jewish community. He was very philanthropic to them. And perhaps there were some who could not attend religious services, some Gentiles. Why? Because maybe the Jews in their area didn't want them to come in to their synagogue service. Can you imagine closing the doors to people who want to hear from God? Awful. Now, the reason I got fascinated about this idea of the worthy household principle is because I thought to myself, from my familiarity of reading the Bible, there are a lot of household passages in the Bible. And they say something about how we can 
minister to families. Listen to some of these. Well, actually, before I do that, the church is sometimes called the household of faith or the household of God. We were, before we were saved, strangers from the household of God, Ephesians tells us. But there were particular families. Think with me of Lydia, Acts 16. She hears Paul at that ladies' prayer meeting when he comes and encounters them at the river praying, and she was saved, and it says that members of her household were also saved and baptized with her. Later in that same chapter, Paul told the Philippian jailer these words. He had to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he said this applies to you and your household. Then the prison guard did, in fact, believe, and it says in Acts 16, 34, and so did his whole household. So did his whole household. Acts chapter 10, Cornelius feared God with all of his household. Somehow Cornelius had an impact in his house. His servants and his family knew that he feared God, and they conducted themselves in a way that was like that. I mean, you've had this at work probably, right? Somebody knows that you fear God. They don't really maybe understand it, but, you know, uh, a four-letter word slips out of their mouth, and they're like, oh, sorry, you know? Good for you. Preach the gospel to them. But they know they're in the presence of a God-fearing person. And you can have that influence upon your house. Cornelius was told by the angel, you will hear words by which you and your household will be saved. Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue. And it says he believed in the Lord and his whole household. Acts 11, or sorry, Acts 18. Acts 11 was the previous one. Then in John chapter 4, a a father had a son who was grievously tormented, and the Lord healed him. And it says in the text that they began to believe in Christ with their whole household. I'm on page 6 of my notes now. 1 Corinthians in chapter 1 tells us that Paul baptized the household of Stephanus. Are all these calling to your mind what you've read in Scripture before? Hebrews tells us that Noah was moved with godly fear to build an ark to save his household. What about you? Are you concerned for the salvation of your household, your family, your kids, those little grandkids that are running around? Your household, you have an impact. These household passages don't talk about baby baptism as many people do. Get that out of your minds. Far from it. Rather, these texts have a far more clear and critical implication. The gospel can move into whole households. If you are the head of the house, and I come knocking at your door, and I preach the gospel, and you believe... What's the next thing you're going to do? I want my wife to be saved. My children have to be born again. The whole household is saved. And so that is important. You maybe heard of a mom and dad being saved. I think we heard a testimony like this at Hiawatha, didn't we? Parents saved, children becoming believers, at least as far as we can tell, and coming along. 
You may have heard of a missionary story where a chieftain of a, of a tribe is saved and then the whole tribe converts to Christ. And you, you might say, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm enough of a Calvinist to know that probably not all of those people were truly saved. Yeah, well, give them some space. Maybe many of them were because they saw their, their chief. They're like, man, he's our leader, and he's just converted to Christ. He, he, must, he must know what he's doing, and we've got to believe just like he does, not just to please him, but because he's trying to please God. Only time will tell, of course, if there's a true conversion in any children or any members of a tribe or whatever, but don't dismiss such household conversions. It is possible that a family could come in here, be saved, and we could have a baptism for all the family members on one Sunday. Wouldn't that be great? Let's pray that God will do that sometime soon in the work of our church. The idea implies that, and by the way, this, is, this shows the importance of being an influential leader in your home. Mom or dad, grandma or grandpa, you have an influence you have an influence. My parents had an influence on me. It was a quiet influence. And then my grandmother on my dad's side had an influence on me, but it wasn't as quiet of an influence. It was a, a letter-writing back-and-forth influence, a sharing Christian magazine influence. It was, it was her sitting next to me at my desk um, working to memorize a scripture verse kind of influence. That kind of influence can have a sanctifying effect on many people around you. The idea implies that as we do evangelistic work, we should keep ourselves aware of worthy households as well as receptive individuals that may need uh, the gospel and be open to receiving the Lord. We should reach into the household to reach mom and dad for the gospel of Christ. Sometimes that goes in reverse. People reach the children, and then through the children, the parents are reached. But I, I think... It's a very difficult road to hoe for kids who are saved in a home where mom and dad aren't saved. But if mom and dad are saved and lead their kids to salvation, what a joy that is. What an easier existence it is for those young children to have parents who are Christians with them rather than them being Christians and not being able to be going to church or whatever because their parents don't care to uh, and so on. The parents have that kind of influence. Pause and think for a minute, about your own household. What is each member's relationship with the Lord in your household? And don't think of a household as, um, you know, the people that live in your four walls. Your household is your family. Your, your family is not just mom, dad, brother, sister. It's aunts, uncles, cousins, nephews, nieces. It's your household. It's your family. What have you done to make sure your household is heard and obeyed the words of the Lord. Would your household be a worthy household to receive the minister of the gospel, to house them for a time and allow them to carry on their work? That's the household, the worthy household principle. The second one, and this is all we'll have time for this morning, is the person of peace principle. It's related to this. The person of peace is a kind of person who as maybe already some of God's work going on inside of them, perhaps an extra measure of common grace already operational in their lives. Cornelius was that kind of person. I mean, you wouldn't say that Cornelius, who gave alms, who supported the synagogue, who feared God, who was concerned about his soul, 
who called for a missionary to come to his home, you wouldn't say that he was a rank pagan. You would say something's going on. God is working in this man's life. I don't know how, but God's doing it. And he's, he's responding to the light that he has at the time. And God sends him the gospel. They, this kind of person is likely to respond to the gospel or certainly not be an opposer or persecutor of the gospel. Thank God for those kind of people. You know, even people who are kind of, they're just peace-loving people that don't believe the gospel, but thank the Lord for them. Far better than these intrusive, hard, atheist types that just want to get in your business as a Christian and mess up your work. Just leave us alone. Go do your own atheist thing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but anyway, person of peace. The idea is that we should be having our eyes open for people of peace. People of peace are within worthy households. They may be ones who will be saved and supportive of the work of the gospel. When we encounter people who are not people of peace, then we must move on and find others who will respond favorably. There's no time to waste in the mission of the gospel. There's an urgency here that we have. So I've actually kind of maybe clumsily moved into our own mission in the Great Commission, but you see the the strings that tie the two together? There may indeed be people today who will receive the gospel of salvation like there were back here that would receive the gospel of the kingdom for those disciples to minister to them. And I, I pray that you've thought about your household today, whether you and others around you are a person of peace, how you might find those people in your life, somebody that's sensitive to the work of God, that you might cultivate that connection, have a Bible study with them, share the gospel with them, uh, share some benevolence to them if they need help, that sort of thing, to try to bring another person of peace or a worthy household to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the wonderful time that we've had in the Word today, the, the excellent music that has been offered, the support uh, in the hymns by, the, by Selah and by John over here and by Christie's playing in the piano and the, the ladies who sang and Selah's special and all of that, and especially these words that bring to us conviction and a reminder of our responsibility as servants of yours. Lord, help us to live in a way that brings you pleasure and honor. And Lord, if there are some around us who don't know Christ, but are perhaps of this sort, a worthy household or a person of peace, where your, your hand is already moving, guide us to them, I pray, and help us to share with them the love of Christ. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.